Hello, everybody. I am here today with Paul Ann Leitner. Um, I've had I've had a conversation with Paul before that was posted on the the Randos United channel, but I I kind of met Paul or became aware of Paul through Paul Vanderclay's channel and sort of the the world around that. Um, and Paul and I also share an interest in John Verveke. Um, I, I think probably I, I like you. I bet I, we found out about John Verveke through Paul Vanderclay. Um, someone recommended it, uh, Verveke's content to Vanderclay, and and then that got us turned on to that. Um, and Paul is the host of Deep Talks uh, podcast. Um, sorry, meaning. What's the subtitle? Yeah, exploring theology and meaning making. Mm -hmm. And Paul is also a pastor at a church in the Twin Cities area of Minnesota. Um, and you you have a really, I, I guess, probably what we should do first, maybe, is go through a little bit of your, your personal story. Um, sure. I, I think Paul is an extremely, you have a very interesting background. You have like this mix of um, like hardcore theology and philosophy interests and then this like charismatic background and those two things don't mix well together i think no. you and i both I'm love weird. you and i both love the charismatic world yep. but sometimes we would probably both agree that intellectualism isn't its uh, strong suit and so having a, an interest in sort of charismaticism and the intellectual heady side of things is a is an interesting combination so we'll just say it's a lonely road sam <laughs> yeah <laughs> people on either side look at you funny uh, exactly i'm weird in any context <laughs> a lot of not too many philosophers will like uh to be willing to talk about speaking in tongues seriously or, or look at that very straight lace and not a lot of people who speaking tongues very often find very much use in philosophy so no i think that's shifting though i mean honestly I, I imagine for you as well sam i mean that's that's a big part of my attraction to the work of, of verveke is because so many of the stuff they talk so much of what he talks about even very early on in his awakening for the meaning christ the series about shamanism participation language versus you know just the propositional knowledge I go, I have these experiences that he's actually giving a degree of voice to from that deep charismatic Pentecostal world. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, I don't know if I would connect with it apart from those experiences. I don't know if you feel the same way. Or yeah, not, I, I agree. I feel like John Verveke does a really good job of sort of, I don't know, balancing kind of, I guess you could say like left-brained and right-brained sort of uh, thinking patterns, both kind of the, the heady science-oriented, right? Because he is a cognitive scientist and he does know a ton about, you know, science and neurology and cognitive science and all of those sorts of things. But he also has this deep appreciation for spiritual practices and, you know, he has uh, exposure to the Christian tradition through his own story. And he, you know, has read like church fathers and likes, you know, Neoplatonism and all this stuff. So he's sort of like um, a scientist who's a woo friendly, I guess, um, <laughs> in, in, a, in a unique sort of way. Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. So so were you raised in a charismatic church? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. I don't think that was really a language that we used about ourselves right and maybe that i can't remember if when we talked before if we talked about that point sam but we used phrases like spirit filled yes yeah 
mm-hmm. or full gospel mm-hmm. or the or other we church. believe in the manifestations was the way you know yeah uh, of the spirit right that's yep. how that's how my yep. church talked about it totally gifts of the spirit manifestations of the spirit so i think charismatic was a term that i actually didn't learn till later now i did learn i think by just sheer experiential difference between the differences in our church context which growing up i was in a was definitely charismatic but by the mid early to mid 90s had moved full on into the word of faith prosperity gospel streams and so you know one of the things people have heard my podcast before i know i joke about this quite a quite a bit and my parents take it well still but um you know my my folks had me read for part of my like daily chores like kenneth copeland's daily devotional book Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, if you know who Kenneth Copeland is, I mean, yeah. he's become quite popular on the internet because of the COVID memes. He was the guy that, you know, was trying to blow away COVID. Maybe mm-hmm. you've seen those videos. And then the, I don't know if you saw, there's a really great one out there. There's this guy that does like metal covers. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's mm-hmm. excellent. So check it out. Anyways. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was the context I inhabited and I understood maybe just because of experiential differences, difference between that. And I had a mentor that was uh, like a worship pastor at a Pentecostal church. And he would invite me over there. And I could, there was experientially a difference between the two. And, and we could spend a lot of time talking about that. So those were, those were pretty formative. And then, you know, I still stayed in the charismatic stream although i'd left like the word of faith stuff probably by my college years and in fact even late in high school it was kind of like i I don't know what i think about this stuff uh, about the theology of the word of faith movement but i was still deeply charismatic even well into my early adult ministry years um you know and this is one of the ways again i connect with verveki stuff because in a lot of ways, the charismatic stream that I inhabited placed a high priority on, on what we would call participatory mm-hmm. knowledge using yeah. Verveke's terms. But the participatory knowledge was experiential in the musical act of worship. And so I've talked about this with Paul Vanderclay before. It was like music in my context was the sacrament on top of the hierarchy of sacraments yeah Um, this was the means of grace nobody used this language but we just by default would talk about experiencing the presence of god and when we were talking about that we almost always were talking about it in association with expressions of musical worship you know even as a kid i went to i don't know several benny hinn crusades which might seem Mm. to many people that might listen to your channel like so weird and out there but for me it was normal the thing that was always even fascinating about the benny hinn crusades was they always started off with worship like musical and it's interesting because it wasn't like hill song <laughs> it wasn't charismatic worship like it was big choirs and yeah. these old gospel tunes and hymns Mm-hmm. and and then benny hinn would he would always come out with his accent bless the lord you know mm-hmm. and, and start singing and and so and um, like we, soloists right like talented yeah, soloists yeah. and mm-hmm. so um that was really formative because even when i was young like a, a significant like revival broke out in my freshman year of high school at my church in christian school which was 
my Christian school I went to was a ministry of the church, you know, so I was one of those evangelical kids, <laughs> mm -hmm. K through 12 Christian school. And the, when that revival broke out and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about it, but what had happened was a, a normal, boring Christian chapel service. The time of worship just didn't stop. It actually went through the rest of the day. The teachers canceled classes. We came back at night to keep worshiping because we had to go home at some point. And we did that for like, not at school, but we continued to meet nightly for like months. And then all of a sudden the parents of these kids who were experiencing manifestations of the spirit and all this stuff started showing up. And before we know it, we had, you know, 400 people packed into our gym, which was also our sanctuary, um, you know, worshiping together. And so that was really formative. So I get into my early adult years, getting out of uh, getting into college, and I find myself really attracted to music ministry, primarily because that was for me, the space where God's God, God was experienced mm -hmm. in a participatory way. And so that continued on for me. <clears throat> and still like my primary duties at the church I serve at now are to lead the church in song. That's one of the primary things I do as a pastor of worship and the arts. But I spent most of my time in deeply charismatic context. It shifted for me when I got into my later college years and early adult years into what we might call uh, the latter rain charismatic movement or third wave charismatic mm -hmm. movement. So, um, boy, I, the weirdness of my, the manifestations and things like that, that would happen in my childhood church got exponentially weirder. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about, um, you know, things that would be very, very strange for people. But for me, it was relatively normal, even though I wasn't much ever of like a manifester myself. Uh, I never really, except from a few different occasions, experienced this phenomenon. We're not just talking about the typical slain in the spirit stuff that you see a healing line, but we're talking about people manifesting that they're like drunk, completely slobber knocked drunk mm -hmm. uh, in what we would say was drunk in the spirit. We, I was in circles where people would talk about getting high in the spirit and were acting like they were tripping on LSD mm -hmm. or um, all these other, you know, experiences that they would have altered states of consciousness. Again, didn't call them that. So again, another point of attraction with Verveke's work. And this was just induced by <clears throat> music and the worship setting and sort totally. of, I don't know, a crowd contagion or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> those are things I'm still kind of working through now. And what has really been important points of dialogue with John, both in person and what I was trying to do in the series is kind of re-examine. We were definitely entering into altered states of consciousness. And I was traveling around the country at the time doing these prophetic conferences, healing conferences, and this wild stuff was happening. And you'd see these like itinerant prophets, mm -hmm. right? Which again, I know for lots of people, they just, they have no grid for that. Uh, one of which was a guy by the name of Bob Jones, not the Bob Jones, not of, the college, Bob, Jones. not the co college, but um, Bob Jones, every time you talk to him, you, he talked like he was in a constant DMT trip. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know how else to describe it. And I don't mean that he's passed away. He was very kind to us. There were certainly some interesting scandals surrounding him. But every time he spoke, it was like he was talking about these visions and experiences that he had that honestly sounded like a DMT trip. It sounded like like images and oh, yes, vivid, vivid details. Um, Very. uh, If you're going to engage with it with your faculties of reason, just forget about it. Mm -hmm. It was and it never landed with me. And maybe that was the side of me that was still like, I'm really interested in theology. And this was starting to bloom and develop in me. So anyways, I inhabited that world up until probably about 2000. 2008 is when I started to experience a bit of a theological shift and heading into 2010, 2012. And primarily that shift was because of let's let's call it um, the nine dot problems of life. Okay. Mm-hmm. My marriage wasn't great. Um, it wasn't awful, but it wasn't great either. I spent most of my day in anxiety and depression because when I'd walk into a Walmart or something, I felt this immense obligation that I had to like cause a revival everywhere mm-hmm. I went. I remember I was leading these 24 seven house of prayer gatherings. Okay. So um, where you get people together, the goal would be to eventually go 24 seven, but you start by taking a 24 hour block with a bunch of cities, mm-hmm. or I should say a bunch of leaders from churches, pastors, different um, worship bands from local churches and people commit to two hour slots. I remember driving to these things and on a Saturday night and I would drive past a movie theater and I'd see all the people in the movie theater and I'd go, man, they're wasting their time. You know, Mm -hmm. I I just had no sense for the mundane features, the imminent features of life being fused with any sort of meaning. It was very much a Gnostic, um, a Gnostic theology that I had unconsciously um, taken into myself and the goal was to get people to an experience, an experience that would give them transcendence, and that transcendence would lift them up out of the boring, mundane, imminent stuff. The problem was I started to realize most of my life is actually lived not in these highs mm-hmm. of altered states of consciousness, but it's doing the laundry and mowing my lawn and taking my kids to school and and so I, I realized I have this nine dot problem that I can't figure out the solution for. My frame is locked in to looking for like a square or a box. You know, I'm getting using that mm-hmm. analogy from Verveke's Meaning Crisis series. And I realized, boy, there's, be- there's got to be more here. So I wouldn't call it a deconstruction per se, though there were certainly deconstructive elements to my journey. By 2012, I'm like, really trying to expand my frame Mm -hmm. so started maybe with church history because I was a history undergrad and I started realizing man what we're doing is not the only way Christians (laughs) have practiced uh, liturgy um, and you know got into eastern orthodox theology which actually was a really strong point of connection for the charismatic theology I had it helped me move from Gnosticism into, I think, a little more holistic faith with their emphasis on theosis, 
um, rethinking the Eucharist and the sacraments, you know, and it just it expanded at the same time I was teaching because I had to make a livable wage, which still mm -hmm. didn't happen. So <laughs> I was like working for churches, doing itinerant ministry, but also uh, like teaching biblical studies courses at a Christian high school where I was the only charismatic at the time I was like an open theist charismatic too. And everyone else were Calvinists. <laughs> <laughs> so shout yeah. out PVK, right? Uh, not just Dutch Calvinists like Paul, but you know, some of the young restless and reform crew at the time, mm. that was a big deal and the Driscoll crew, but that was really healthy because they actually really exposed me to traditions, to different streams in the Christian river that were outside of my own. That was really healthy. And uh, so from that point, I, you know, I think my theological perspective started to expand and really it was driven Sam completely by this desire that birthed out of these participatory experiences that I said, I just want to know God in all the available channels there mm -hmm. are. And so I still celebrate those experiences, not all of them, but I, I celebrate the participatory, the mystical, the altered state of consciousness that, and I've, I've been working through an entire framework <laughs> mm -hmm. to help make sense of this. I celebrate that, but I also celebrate the other paths that we have to knowledge of God, which with in our rich historic Christian tradition is also affirmed general revelation and reason. Mm -hmm. So, and part of that for me was I needed to become more science, uh, more uh, science literate because I had such poor science literacy growing up in that context. So some of that interest really got exploded when I went back um, to, to seminary uh, to get a master's in Christian thought, which is essentially just like philosophical theology. Mm -hmm. And that's actually where I started to get into the work of um, Robert Keegan, long before Peterson and Verveke, where I was aware of them. Uh, Keegan is a behavioral or cognitive scientist, you know, I don't always know the dividing line there. And he had this term called meaning making. And meaning making for him was this process that humans do as storied creatures, where we're constantly looking for meaning. And I thought that that was a really good way of understanding what theology, philosophy, the humanities, the sciences are. It's all our quest to find and make meaning in a world in which we're given a story, um, typically in our youth, about what the true meaning of the world is. But yet as we grow, this was part of Keegan's developmental theory, um, we get to a certain point where we begin to assess and critique those stories, and we begin to reassess that meaning-making narrative. So hence the subtitle to the podcast, which has been for me, the points of intersection between theology and all of our other meaning-making endeavors. That for me is the, the biggest mm -hmm. point of interest. And the deep talks thing came because um, my high school students uh, in my like theology and philosophy classes, they would, you know, I'd hear them in the hallways and they go, what would you guys do in Mr. A's class? And I said, oh, we just had deep talks. That's it. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's where the, that's the title cool. comes from. So when did you come across Peterson and what caught your interest about him? Um, Peterson, I came across him like probably right after he blew up in the culture war <laughs> and that wasn't the point of interest for me, but it, it was the, 
the only way a guy like that ends up on people's salience landscapes in the broader culture and it's why verveki doesn't because verveki doesn't play the culture war game mm-hmm. so um it was probably just on youtube it was you know 20 i'd say 2016 maybe yeah you know uh-huh. when was the c16 or yeah right before? around then mm-hmm. yeah um and so but that stuff didn't interest me um what was interesting to me was when he did get into like the biblical series lectures i was like well this is fascinating i don't really jive with his hermeneutic but Mm. that there's somebody doing meaning making at this level and is taking seriously that we can't just dismiss theology as some sort of like pseudoscience yeah Yeah. pseudoscience worthless discipline um and you know he's incorporating a bunch of things that i was already interested in like i have deep connections with kind of the existential tradition of kierkegaard but also even you know camus and others and then of course that is nietzsche's domain as well um and so he's talking about these guys like nietzsche and camus and then young who i always found young to be a very interesting guy um so it was right around then mm-hmm. um and i think bob ended- jones and carl jung could probably understand oh each other. yes exactly <laughs> mm-hmm. totally i mean that's the point of like you you young is such a strange duck man like he's you know along with freud those are the two probably the biggest schools of thought in psychology the 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 patriarchs of it in um in the modern western tradition of course you got guys like piaget but they're less well known um and young is he's just he's tapping he taps into stuff that you're like he's he's just an interesting an interesting case study i always found him interesting some things i'm like this is brilliant others i'm like 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 you're saying am i listening to bob jones here where is this where is this coming from so yeah peterson was a point of interest and um and that's actually like my i started my podcast with doing just like a theological analysis of peterson's work at the time i'd been meeting with you know 15 to 20 um people in their college years and early 20s and they'd been asking me about this peterson guy like what do you think of him and i kind of got to the point where i was like just with the busyness of life i couldn't keep meeting with people so i was like well i'll just i'll just hop on and record some thoughts about it because then i can share it with these people and not be meeting with all mm-hmm. these different groups i just couldn't do it um, and i had some friends in mind when he'd come to town i bought tick gave me a ticket to go and see him and that really was like all right We've got a lot, I'm getting a lot of questions from people about this guy. So, um, and then I did that and I was like, YouTube recommended for me, the algorithm recommended me Paul Vanderclay's channel. Mm-hmm. I, I actually, like, oh. I actually have a slight question about, about the Peterson phenomenon. One thing that I kind of recognize, cause I saw Peterson when he was coming to Chicago is that his traveling tour or whatever it was back in 2016, 17, 18, was sort of like a revival charismatic tour, right? It had some of that energy to oh, it. Yeah. 
in a way that I think I, I think a lot of the people who went to him didn't maybe have Christian or certainly not charismatic backgrounds. But for someone who did, you could recognize that there was something going on that was kind of similar to that. Yeah. Yeah. And and part of that, too, is just, you know, some of the downside of especially the third wave charismatic stuff. And when you got into the word of faith movement is you still had this this typology of Moses coming down the mountain, you know, mm-hmm. and here's our, here's our guy that, that gets it. And, mm-hmm. you know, the celebrity culture stuff. And th- that's very much part of the Peterson phenomenon too. Yeah. Um, is this guy's the guy that's come down from the mountain, except the mountain is not just a mountain of experiential revelation. He's also a scientist. So he's got, he's got credibility in, in, in speaking on behalf of, at least the the god that um people wouldn't name as god but mm-hmm. it still sits atop of their value hierarchy it's still the highest thing they can consider and so he's got credibility with that crowd and then of course there's the culture war stuff and a lot you know to me the biggest thing that has been a drawback to me with peterson's work but it's honestly it probably would have never heard of him otherwise is the culture the yeah. culture war game and mm-hmm. that to me is just so uh, I talk about this quite a bit. We are plugged into a culture war matrix. We can't even process information. Most people can't process information outside of a culture war filter. Um, so any statement that's made, if it pings on the radar of the culture war, one team will grab it mm-hmm. and they'll go, this is ammo for our cause. And I don't know if initially, I don't, think peterson was trying to do that but did you ever watch that documentary they um what was it called i almost want to call it the rise and fall of jordan peterson but that's the rise and fall of Mars. <laughs> i i think i i know what you're talking about i don't think i did you should watch it it's excellent it's really well balanced but you certainly get <clears throat> the idea in the sense that peterson growing up in that cold war era feels very much a sense of a dualistic clash between good and evil in the world and that there are definitely forces of good and definitely forces of evil and to a degree i agree with that i just don't think it's as easy to discern Mm -hmm. (laughs) when the heart is deceitful above all else that that people are a mixture of things so that 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 thing has never been an appeal to me the interviews the Mm-hmm. And then there's certainly a subculture around Peterson's work that is grabbing on to him for ammunition in the culture war. Whereas with Verveke, there's none of that. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's um, that was refreshing. As I moved from Peterson's work into Verveke's, it still was scratching this itch I had, which was I want to be more competent in seeing the ways theology and science dialogue together, um, how all of these available paths that we have at our disposal help us understand God and the reality that he's ordered. And so Verveke's work, although it's less in the myth and narrative realm, Mm -hmm. which makes it a little harder point of entry. It's not quite as accessible. Yeah. Right, right. Um, But it is more, well, in some ways, it's, it's more structured. I Certainly. feel like, yeah, right. Cause, yes, yes, cause yes. like with Jordan Peterson, if you're trying to understand what he believes, you kind of have to reverse engineer 
yeah. his his worldview kind of piecing together a whole bunch of different things that he said yeah right? stream of Where, consciousness mm-hmm. and, and that's that's another feature of like him being like the charismatic preacher yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. is that he's very impromptu right um and, and very kind of bounces feedback off of his audience and and goes in the direction that kind of they lead him to right uh which yes. is similar um but but for Vicky is much more structured i feel like and um and while he uses big fancy for words and there's a a steeper kind of learning curve and entry i feel like it's actually in some sense also easier to understand and make sense of because uh, uh Vicky has done a little bit more of his own homework and scaffold work for you when once you start to understand uh how how he talks yeah and i think i've sensed again i I don't want to make this a comparison because i am very um that makes one better than the other because i'm appreciative of both their work but one of the things i am very appreciative about john's work is his um his emotional intelligence Mm -hmm. that he's very much aware of how his words can land in ways that could be hurtful to people and he takes great care in those words and that's why i think he's able to dialogue with people of divergent religious traditions and backgrounds um that that he's a little bit more of a bridge builder Mm -hmm. in that sense um certainly john's got convictions about things and a way of seeing the world that he's fine um being in disagreement you know and can set boundaries for himself and, and we've certainly bumped into a few points of dis- disagreement and charity, but um, that he's got enough emotional intelligence to pick up on that and to be very careful in um, he's a little less stream of consciousness, which means a little bit more care mm-hmm. in the word choices, even if they've got more syllables than what Peterson is <laughs> typically yeah. using. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's certainly a benefit to a, a wider audience that's just tired of um, you know, we're going to get some great points of connection between religion and philosophy and uh, evolutionary psychology. But then I might also throw in, you know, if I'm Peterson, I might throw in something that's really inflammatory about culture war stuff. And that, mm-hmm. that for me, I'm just, I'm just exhausted. I'm personally exhausted by it. And I, I, I think it's, um, it's, it's de- detracting from what I'm trying to get out of it which is you know how do these things dialogue together mm-hmm. so i i found verveki stuff to be very helpful in that regard so so what are some of the the things uh, some of the details in verveki's thought that you have found helpful oh boy um gosh how do we how do we summarize that um I think Verveke's pursuit of wisdom um, and seeing it as a not a singular track, but there are multiple um, pathways isn't the right word. There are multiple heuristics. Um, there are multiple um liturgical processes that produce in us wisdom um, is very attractive 
I think one of the big things personally, though, for me is at the core of Verveke's work is a sense that wisdom wisdom is not attainable awakening from a meaning crisis is not attainable unless someone goes through a process of self-transcendence and i see such deep resonance with that and the christian project and the following of the way of jesus that cause calls us to um, offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to carry our cross, all of these themes that require us to move beyond our egotistical concerns, to be able to take all of that machinery, right? The machinery that we have, that's typically dedicated to our own self-preservation. And that machinery gets exapted in a way, right? Mm -hmm. He talks yeah. about this, this, like your tongue, it probably didn't uh, evolve to be a thing that communicates it was probably at first a poison detector and then mm -hmm. it gets exapted for another use we have all this machinery in us that's bound up in self-preservation and staying alive which is good we need to stay alive mm -hmm. <laughs> but that he sees connected to a genuine attainment of wisdom a genuine awakening uh, an acceptation of that machinery to be turned towards a consciousness of others, their needs, what is for the benefit of others and the world outside of me, I go, this is at the core of the born again experience for an evangelical. It's the same transformation. So for me, in a nutshell, that is probably... Um, the biggest point of attraction and along with that for me personally is seeing um trying to find language that could help me be a better dialogue partner with somebody um outside of my christianese frame that i inhabit mm. right um and i want to make sure there's points of resonance between the things that have, for me, a core value is I don't see, I don't see differentiate, I don't see a bifurcation between general revelation and special revelation. Mm -hmm. I don't see these things at odds. Mm -hmm. So for me, I want to find a way that those things can live in harmony. And if we've got a scientist like Verveke, who's doing really important work, that's going, hey, there might be harmony here between those things. I find that attractive and worth considering. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree a lot. Um, I think one of one of Verveke's most helpful, I don't know, psychotechnologies um, is, is the four P's thing, the four yes. ways of knowing. Um, the, and, and honestly, I, I, I kind of want to work this through with you a little bit, because I think we we might disagree on or might miss <laughs> i'm not sure if we we define them the same way mm. but um the four p's being um the propositional way of knowing and the four p's are four ways of knowing right uh the propositional which is sort of like um you are paul and lightner you have a beard you know you have blue eyes right these are things that i can describe and say with propositions they can be true or false etc um, I could write them down, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and then I think 
what I uh, there the other three are the participatory, the procedural, and the perspectival. Procedural is easy to define. It's like knowing how to do things, right? You know, you know how to ride a bike, you know how to drive your car, you know how to make a bowl of cereal for breakfast. And you only know right? them by doing them, doing right. the procedures. Mm -hmm. Like you can articulate what you're doing, but you don't even need to articulate it to do it. You, you can almost do it like, you know, when you're driving your car and you're barely thinking about driving your car, your mind's daydreaming. And all of a sudden you're pulling into your garage and it's like, well, wait a minute, how'd I get here? Right. Uh, the, like, you know, you, you, you can operate in procedural mode with very little conscious attention once you're good at something. Right. That's the procedural way. And then the perspectival and the participatory, I think sometimes I have trouble distinguishing them or defining them. And one way I define them is like, perspectival right the perspective that's like the first person experience of something and then participatory is like the feeling of being part of something that's bigger than yourself right um but when you were talking about the participatory experience and worship music that was, I was sort of like well I don't know that's sort of why I would call the the perspectival experience so how do you how say do you, why explain a little bit more why you feel that way so like per perspectival to me, right, is like, you know, the, right, I can, I can explain to you how to ride a bike, right, you can know how to ride a bike, but then there's the experience of being on a bike and doing it, right, and the only way you can ever know what it's like to ride a bike is to ride a bike, right, mm -hmm. I can't, I can't give you my perspectival knowing right? You have, the only person who can give you perspectival knowing is yourself, right? Mm. You, you have to be the, the first person perceiver that has the perspective of, of being in a situation of doing something, right? Like, you know, of feeling God's love for you, right? I can talk about God's love, you know, and I could maybe try and instruct you some ways to feel God's love, but until you felt that, you know, I'm only describing something that you may already know or you don't know. And if you don't know it, then I can only help you so much, right? Mm -hmm, exactly. Um, and then the the participatory is like that feeling of being part of something that's bigger than yourself, right? And I, I especially imagine as like a social kind of knowing, right? Yeah. So I think for me, the way I understand participatory, and this gets into Verveke's stuff on agopic love, agape, um, participatory knowing is much more akin to the, the experiential love that we might have in these deep bonds of knowing the deepest ones that we can consider, um, the deepest icons of that, which would be the, the bonds of love between parent and child, the bonds of love between husband and wife. Um, and so for me, when I, when I talk about I can see the perspectival thing. And I, I mean, I wouldn't argue about it with you. Um, but I guess for me, the when I use the language of participation, it's because we very much talked as if we were having experiential communion with God. And so mm -hmm. that's what I mean. And that moment of wherever we think the means of grace is happening, the thing that unites uh, heaven and earth, the thing that unites my... Uh, my, my conscious awareness with a greater God consciousness, um, that to me is a participation in the divine. So that's why I focus more on that. But I can certainly understand the, the perspectival, mm -hmm. because you also, um, 
uh, well I'll, I'll stop there i'll stop there yeah so like i feel like we sort of talked about this when we were having our conversation with john or not john for vacay john um deep dark seas um that that there I, I i feel like those four ways of knowing kind of can certain denominations or strains of Christianity, and I'm sure this is bigger than Christianity too, right? I'm sure you could say the same thing about different kinds of Islam or, or other religions, but you know, I, I know Christianity and its varieties most firsthand is that different strains of Christianity emphasize the different four ways of knowing, mm -hmm. right? Like a church that would emphasize propositional would be a very doctrinally oriented we could kind of maybe associate it with Calvinism, right? Yeah. And, or, or very, you know, uh, propositionally focused Protestantism and the means of grace in that sort of church is the sermon, right? Yes. Because the pastor is teaching you the propositions and that learning, that, that growth through learning of hearing teaching is the experience of, of transcendence. Yeah, right? and perhaps even deeper than that is what gets you into the in-group. Yeah. what gives yeah. you the sense of community would be um how can you sign off on this statement of faith yes right yeah and right? that that's how it defines the group yeah the statement of faith can you list out can you confess this list this whole the westminster confession or or, or what have you right and exactly. that's how the group defines it and then I could say like each of them has a, a dark side. You can almost say what what would pro propositional idolatry be, right? And propositional idolatry is agreeing to these things is what saves you, right? You know, just simply simply agreeing to this list of propositions. That's right. where salvation lies, right? Right. Right. And for Verveki, Verveki, it's if we move out of the salvation language, the problem for him is that adherence intellectual agreement to propositions does not produce wisdom mm -hmm. and wisdom is like skilled applied to the right situation right and so um that's why i can't like i coach my son's basketball team i don't just give them propositions about how to play we mm -hmm. participate in it we go through the procedures um of how to play the game we go through skill development Right. And but per, but the propositional has a role. Like yes. when you're up there doing X's and O's and drawing exactly. lines and giving here's the play that we're going to use. And mm -hmm. right, you know, like, you know, the propositional has a role to play in being a good basketball team. But I think when it gets idolatrous, right, is when you think that that's all that there is and you your frame gets trapped in that way of knowing and it becomes over elevated over and against the other ones right and i think you know it's very easy to imagine certain kinds of evangelical protestantism that get trapped in the propositional as yeah. as the main way but then you know kind of moving over and again like whether that's perspectival or participatory right like charismatic land can get trapped in that right saying what saves you is having this experience right you know that that overwhelming emotional transcendent experience of God and loving you and, you know, that, that being slain in the spirit or drunk in the spirit, that sort of thing, like that's where salvation lies, right? Like you can get trapped in a participatory idolatry that way too. Exactly. Yeah. I totally agree. And that's where we have to have the propositional and these other forms of knowledge because all I don't want to say all that it is. 
the pitfall of this emphasis on experience encounter mm-hmm. the pitfall of that is that it runs a real danger of saying salvation wisdom holiness so whole yeah holiness and wholeness right so if we think of union with god as the end we will we'll stay away from the what we are saved from for mm-hmm. a moment and not get into those debates in christian yeah. theology but we'll focus on what has been almost universally agreed upon is what we're saved to saved to union with god communion with god and across the traditions you could bring a roman catholic and a staunch like true calvinist in and what is the aim the aim is to be in christ and and his union with god that is the end that's the telos um the real danger in the christian communities that focus on encounter 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 but they're not engaging with the general revelation of the sciences that give us true propositions at times not always it's a self-correcting process but can give us true propositions about the world is they can miss out on see this is the thing i started i've started to realize in hindsight we place so much emphasis on salvation being simply an altered state of consciousness yeah Mm -hmm. that the flow state is the presence of god Mm -hmm. and the flow state can happen all sorts of different ways altered states of consciousness can happen in all sorts of different ways and this is one of the points of tension for me in verveke's work that we've had some dialogue about was you you have to have some sort of external value system to be able to evaluate whether or not those altered states of consciousness and and what they produce in you are aimed towards the good right because the the occult we could say often has very sorts of similar things to pentecostalism yes exactly yeah and like discern you know the discerning of the spirits right how do you know if this experience is you know (laughs) towards god or towards the devil right you know and and that they can often feel very similar exactly and you Mm -hmm. know the thing (laughs) even though there seems to be um not a consensus on what the good is in our culture there does seem to be always the go-to for the consensus on what mm-hmm. what is not good and evil yeah. so we can always go to the nazis right everybody's right. fine with the nazis okay mm-hmm. uh himmler himmler had a deep deep connection and attraction to occult phenomenon yeah and um there were occult practices that the nazis were tapping into that had by all intents and purposes, we're certainly producing in them altered states of consciousness. So to simply have an altered state of consciousness is not necessarily for our good. And in the Christian tradition, we would affirm, and this is, I talk about this in this this series that I've done, to simply go, um, I've kind of laid out maybe a a, a path of contemplation, the the, the path of awakening, right? And and that is working with Verveke's terminology and some of, you know, Christian theology and Christian mysticism. For Verveke, there's no awakening without that getting into that state of self-transcendence. Now, Mm -hmm. altered states of consciousness can lead to self-transcendence. The scientific literature on this for even those that are using psychedelics Mm -hmm. that have transformative experiences and altered states of consciousness 
that produce um, lasting, what we might call fruit, is almost incontrovertible. So Johns Hopkins University has done, I believe it was John Hop Johns Hopkins University did um, some long, longer term studies on this. Now, of course, it's hard to do. You're, do, you're working off of people's self-reported experiences, no. which that's always interesting. But people that had traditional religious experiences and many people that had profound experiences on psilocybin report um, lasting change, uh, positive fruit, like what we'd say are the fruits of the spirit. They experience more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness long after that. I have no doubts about that. The key for me is once we move beyond this, I want to be just like aware of the time we have. So I want, I don't want to lay out too much here, Sam, but um, if we, if we consider that like David Bentley Hart, David Bentley Hart argues that our experience of consciousness is a real albeit finite participation in God's consciousness. So the very ground of all conscious experience is grounded in the one, mm -hmm. you know, we can use neoplatonic language or platonic language, the good, there is a fount of all conscious experience, not just as the prime mover or the person that kickstarted it, but is actually grounding it and holding it all together. So everything you know, all through him, by him, through him, for him, you know, mm -hmm. all this Christian language, this very moment is being held together by God. Our conscious experience of it is. We experience throughout our day varying degrees of consciousness, conscious awareness of what's beyond ourselves, conscious awareness of God, right? Most of our conscious energy throughout our day, and I think Verbeke's work is really helpful in this, is again given to self-preservation. Mm -hmm. That's how we survived as a species. So if you lose that and there's a snake in the grass and you get bit by this poisonous snake, you're dead. So mm -hmm. you better be consciously aware at all times of these threats. So we get that. But we've certainly seen throughout time in history, across traditions, people have had moments, whether it has been through ingesting some sort of substance, which helps maybe relax some of that fight or flight mechanism, you know, or it has been through liturgical practices, shamanistic practices, that people can have an altered state of consciousness away from the survival mode, that baseline mode. Mm -hmm. So for me, the question is, it's not a matter of whether or not people can have altered states of consciousness. It's when that state of consciousness is altered and we move beyond ourselves. are we automatically moving towards the good or at times can we move into a domain in which there are agencies and powers beyond us now this is where you guys are gonna some people mm -hmm. might listen and go oh now we're getting to the charismatic pentecostal <laughs> bring but it this on is, this is this is historic christian <laughs> theology here there are principalities and powers that do transcend us that are not god mm -hmm. so 
when we talk about a a Himmler and the Nazis and their occult practices, someone can experience an immense, deeply profound self-transcended experience, which all that means is they've moved beyond the survival mode into relating to a power that's higher than them. Mm -hmm. That can be a profound experience, especially for most people caught in the secular frame. Yeah, it can be very meaningful. It can be very transformative and it can change your character in all sorts of lasting ways. But, <laughs> but is it oriented towards the true telos of our deepest desires? Is it oriented towards what's good, true, and beautiful? Is it oriented towards the fount of that? And it's not automatic. It's not automatic that a state of altered state of consciousness, where we move beyond our self-preservation concerns, we relate to a power higher than itself. I don't think that produces in people automatically a fruit, the fruits of the spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe there is metanoia, genuine metanoia that can happen as we continue to go deeper and we find ourselves in right relation with not just principalities and powers. See, that's to me at the heart of paganism is they mm-hmm. stop at that level. And some of those things they experience, whether it's wisdom personified by Athena, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We could talk about Eros, you know, these things that are actually good experiences. The the Christian theology of Romans 1 is when we settle for those things, instead of continuing upward, what we end up doing is we make idols out of those powers that are beyond us. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, instead of continuing in this almost it is an infinite upward direction of contemplation that goes, yes, this is beautiful and true and good. So whether it might be somebody who's been on a trip on psilocybin and they feel this deep oneness with the material created order, which a lot of people experience, and it leads them into, oftentimes it leads them into exploring like pagan earth worship stuff. It's like, You tasted some of the good in part, but that was intended to lead you deeper and beyond instead of settling there. Um, Mm -hmm. That's been a point of dialogue that I think I had in my second conversation, maybe less explicitly with John, where John was fine in a sense, and maybe I need to have clarifying conversation with him. I think you've listened to it. So maybe you could Mm -hmm. give your interpretation of it. John was fine in a sense with the leveling up. Mm-hmm. And he even said specifically, I know, Paul, you want to keep leveling up and I'm just not there. So maybe, mm-hmm. you know, if John listens into this, he can correct me if I'm misconstruing it. But to me, I go, we, we have to keep leveling up because there's going to be a value judgment on this experience. So where does those values come from? It's got to be a level beyond that. And we keep going until we, again, there, there are points of overlap with Christian theology, the Neoplatonic tradition, and even just Platonism in general, that we have to keep contemplating all the way up till we get to the point of the one, which in Christian theology is only understood via the logos. And this was actually Philo of Alexandria's point Mm -hmm. as well, writing in the first century with no knowledge of who Christ was. There has to be a mediating agent there. 
right? Otherwise, the infinite is beyond us. So what we have as Christians is we look to Christ, you know, to, to Christ is the not just the moral exemplar, but the, the revelation of what God's character and nature, what truth, goodness, and beauty look like. And to me, it's ultimately cruciform. It looks like God dying for his enemies. It looks like an other-oriented love. And so, I mean, I see in this stuff beautiful harmony. Some might just say it's confirmation bias, but it's mm-hmm. all right. <laughs> I, I have like five different ways I want to go with that. But one one thing I, I did want to mention that I think sometimes Pentecostals are charismatic-oriented people who can be tempted towards that participatory idolatry sometimes miss out on is like I grew up in a church that really emphasized speaking in tongues as evidence that you had the Holy Spirit and evidence that you had salvation. Okay, well, what's the converse of that? What if you're the kid in church who never quite felt like they could speak in tongues, right? And what it and I think you will agree with me that there are lots of people who grow up in this environment that it just never really clicks for them. They're like, I see my friends and my pastor and my family around me having these experiences, but I just don't, I don't think I'm having the real thing that they seem to be having. I must not be part of this thing. I must not be saved, right? Or even worse, if you see them having that, you're not having it, but you also see the fruit in their life. Uh And if the fruit in their life doesn't look like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, if it doesn't resemble the character of Jesus in an ever transforming way, you're going, well, what's the point of that? Right. And I I think you would agree with me that certain personality types are more cued in, tapped into this sort of thing, right? And it comes more naturally to some people than others. And so if if you're one of those people who's just kind of not wired that way and you're growing up in this tradition, it can feel kind of alienating. And I know some some people who grew up in my church, they were like, you know, this the speaking in tongues thing just never happened for me. It just never clicked. And like I, the only conclusion that I could draw from that is like I didn't belong there. And it's like, yeah. well, sheesh, <laughs> you know, yeah. right? That that's that's sort of one of we, we talked about the dark side of having experiences and who's the principality or power behind that experience and what direction is it oriented you that's one of the dangers of that of overemphasizing this thing but one of the other dangers is some people just don't connect with god seemingly that way or to that same degree and then they feel left out if if they're told that that's the only path to god or the most important or the most real or the real sign that you're on the in crowd sort of thing and and that that's very dangerous in its own way too Totally agree. And you got to have, and this is another point of Verveke's emphasis. Can, can we affirm something through multiple lines and levels of inquiry? Mm-hmm. That's one of the ways that we can test the veracity of a, of a truth claim is can we get there through a checks and balances system, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so this is, that's an area where it's like, man, I really want to help those who have come out of and spent time in charismatic context, be more conversant with the sciences I mean, even just something as simple as understanding, like, you know, take the big five personality test. Yeah. You know, some people are, even when we're having this conversation together, I fully recognize it's not for everybody. And if they listen to this and they go, I don't care about this stuff. All I want to do is figure out how to be a better plumber or to be a better fisherman that's great because you know what they just might not and this isn't a downside like mm-hmm. i don't score 
my my scores in like conscientiousness and orderliness are competent but they're not in like the 90th percentile i don't i just don't i'm never going to be that guy yeah i score high in openness which is why i love these conversations Mm -hmm. at the end someone else might listen to go well can you summarize the main point in a sentence that i can take away and yeah can you make this practical for me yeah you make it practical and and that's that's why we need those people in the same way, there are different gifts, spiritual gifts given to different people, which I think aligns with their own genetic predispositions and personality predispositions. And, you know, some of the manifestations of the spirit stuff, I think a lot of it, if you, you overlapped it with people that are more susceptible to hypnosis, I think there would be a degree of overlap there. Yep. <laughs> yep. And that's not they have strengths in other areas. And this is why the body analogy of scripture is so important. We have many parts in one body. Um, and this is why I'm so against the culture war stuff, because the culture war divides people. We know this to be true, guys, like people that score higher in conscientiousness tend to be politically conservative. hmm. And this is why, I mean, you get down to the depths of this stuff. This is why, and they typically often, if you score really, really high in conscientiousness, you don't often score high in openness to Mm -hmm. new experiences. But what do progressives typically have? They're typically a little higher in openness, lower in conscientiousness, which might be when you come out to the suburbs. And I, I say this as someone living in the suburbs right now, and most of the houses look the same. Right. The, the, the yard is well kept. Uh, yes. My, all my neighbors mm-hmm. take really good care of their yard. And you know what? There's no crime here. I mean, thank mm-hmm. God, very little crime and people are fairly like, they're going to show up on time at work, but you know, we're missing the arts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Show me like a good performance. Like that, like that house that might have the paint peeling off a little bit, but it has really interesting plants and, and there's like an old rusty Subaru with bumper stickers scattered and different angles on the back, right? That's yes. the person who's high in openness, but not very high in conscientiousness. And totally. we know how that person tends to vote and our political polarization yanks those gifts apart from each other so that we have two divided bodies that don't get to experience the synergy of strengths of bringing those things back together. I've got, um, there's a, a fa- two families in our church. They couldn't be further apart in the political spectrum. They've both been attending for a long time. One of the families has been at this church for multiple generations. Their kids and grandkids have been raised here and stayed in the church. Um, I hope they wouldn't mind me saying this. They'll probably never listen to this, but that's okay. I won't name their names. They now have two of their children from two different families getting married this month. They've grown up in the same church. I'm trying to imagine a context where that, where does that happen? Mm-hmm. Outside mm-hmm. of the church, outside mm-hmm. of Christian community. So it's not like, it's not like the church is a place where we affirm that all, all of their perspectives are right everybody in the company of Jesus is wrong. (laughs) So you get the tax collector and you get the zealot and they're both disciples of Jesus. That's not an affirmation that they're both right. It's an affirmation that they have degrees of rightness in the way they see the world, at least insofar as they want to follow Jesus. 
but they're also wrong in the company of Jesus. So I'm super excited. You got these two families. One, I've had to tell the guy, hey, bud, you can't bring your water bottle. Gosh, <laughs> yeah, now this is definitely, <laughs> you can't bring your water bottle up that has the NRA sticker onto the, the, the platform in church when you're going to share, <laughs> you know, you just can't, it's going to be a point of division. And the other family is like, you know, just NPR, you know, yeah. uh, they love, and they're both great families. And now they have adult children that are getting married next month. Mm -hmm. um, I want the church to be a place now we feel like we've really taken a left turn, but it's, it's tangential at least to this to be a place that has unplugged from the culture war and both, and everybody recognizes that in the company of Jesus, we are all wrong. So let's remain open to that possibility, work things out in tension and begin to understand you have this value, right? And can we be, can we say, I see that you have this value and the value is good, even though we disagree on the expression of that value. That's, mm -hmm. that's really, mm -hmm. really tough. So even the spiritual gift thing is like, it's really hard because somebody just might not ever speak in tongues. Mm -hmm. They might not ever want to raise their hands or dance. And they might not ever have some seriously altered state of consciousness that, that feels like they're transcending themselves or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that they're not a Christian, not a member of the body, don't have something else to contribute, right? And like one of the other pillars that we didn't talk about or P's that we didn't talk about very much was procedural, right? And, you know, some churches are really procedural, like, like heavy liturgy, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, you know, Eastern Orthodoxy probably is, you know, the best example of, of the, the church that elevates procedural, perhaps to the highest. And, you know, there, there's a lot of people who will connect with that, right? Like, I have, it's like, if you're one of those kids who just felt, never felt like they could speak in tongues or never felt like they got what was seemingly going on in these other people, well, I bet you could do a liturgy, right? Can you stand up? Can you sit down? Can you say words at a certain time? Can you say this prayer? Can you, you know, right? Like move around when we all move around? Well, everyone can do that, right? You know, and, and that, that will connect to certain sorts of people that other things don't. But even then there, you could imagine a procedural idolatry too. That's just like, just go through these motions. That's what saves you. This liturgy is right. And, and people who grew up in a church that might be overly emphasizing it that way. And like my mom grew up in Catholicism and she kind of felt this way from Catholicism that felt like you were just going through the motions, but it didn't like matter. Right. Yeah. Yes. Right. It, it was like just going through the motions, but it didn't have that perspectival connection to it. Right. And totally. so, so you can imagine it's not like procedural is perfect either, but no. um, yeah. No, and that's why multiple, can we have multiple levels of analysis working right. together in tension sometimes, in dialogue together? Um, I think practically when it even just comes to ministry, that's one area. And I've, I've told John this before, that the four Ps alone have transformed the way I think about ministry and church and what we do on a Sunday morning and what we do outside of Sunday mornings to be consciously aware of, are we overemphasizing one P at the expense of another? Right. And I think we are. It's hard to change that in a culture, mm -hmm. you know, um, but to be more con consciously aware of it. So it's like, 
for charismatics that really love, whether it's the perspectival or the participatory, one thing that can be of real benefit is if they get intentional about the propositional and the procedural. So mm -hmm. they need to realize whether they're aware of it or not. I had no awareness of it, that they're, they have a liturgy too. Yeah. They have a procedural element to them, but sometimes it's given without reflection. And mm -hmm. it, it's just about the, what sits atop the hierarchy of values is spontaneity. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. So, but the spontaneity is, as you do it week in and week out, it becomes fairly predictable. These predictable patterns emerge anyways. Mm -hmm. So the thing that they need to be self-reflective on is, does this procedure that we're doing over and over again, because is this going to shape in us uh, or orient us towards the good? And so we need to have critical reflection about that. I'm really thankful. Years ago, a friend of mine who was one of those, you know, at one point, really young, restless and reformed Calvinists and kind of moved into more of a Vander Clay Dutch reformed Calvinist really challenged me because I was talking about worship and the value of individual expression and spontaneity. And why don't people feel as free in church as they do at a football game, cheering and screaming? And he said, you know what? I really respectfully said, hey, one of the concerns I have is that what you might be doing is just continuing to foster people's individualism by focusing on individual expression, individual expression, individual expression. What you're so not consciously aware of is how focusing too much on individual expression is just affirming a deep American cultural value. Right. Instead and perhaps going, that's part of the distinction between perspectival and participatory, right? Participatory is when you start to unite that in a group. Yes. Right. And, and we're part of a body that is worshiping together, not just me off in my own head, having my spiritual trip that feels really exciting and interesting, but mm -hmm. is unconnected from the people around me. Yeah. So practically, it might be like thinking about things like leading people through responsive prayers where they're corporately doing, but you've worked on it with intentionality throughout the week to make sure that what you're saying is propositionally true together. Mm -hmm. that the practices that you would do on repeat should hopefully be or aimed and oriented towards people seeing the world rightly and truly. And that takes some critical thought and reflection in advance. It's not just spontaneous. And uh, if you do it week in and week out, the question is, okay, what might this produce in somebody through the, the habituation? I mean, that's like, that's Aristotle, the mm -hmm. process by which we have, we get new virtues produced in us is through habituation. Mm -hmm. It's through following a moral exemplar and following their lead and then doing the practice over and over. That's James K. Smith's, you are what you love. So we can hack someone's value system by having them do something over and over again. Nobody does that better than the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody has liturgy down better than the NFL. So if you go to an NFL football game every week, I guarantee you, you're going to be a blue blooded patriotic American. Yeah. Cause they're the big booming voice on the speaker before the game is standing up saying, stand up, men, remove your caps, place your mm -hmm. hand over your heart. We just went to like a Vikings preseason game with my son. And when that happened, he looked at me like, 
right isn't it so weird once you kind of have this way of thinking to notice these things in places that you pre like who no one thinks of an nfl game as a religious experience but it totally totally is and it's very procedural right and like even like the super bowl is it's like it's like a national religious festival is really oh yeah what it, it is, is. Yep. it's like all the different games build up to that right they're like the regional religious festivals right like the vikings over for you guys and we have the bears right and these are like the sub principalities of our nation yep. and then all of a sudden then like the super bowl is like the culmination <laughs> of the united thing and we have the oh, fighter yeah. jets and you know like it, it's totally it's totally a a religious uh ritual thing and mm-hmm. uh one could bring up questions of then what 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 should occur Christian think of that sort of thing and how acceptable it is to participate but it's totally got all of that it's funny to see it once you see it though oh yeah when you're immersed in it you don't see it but when you can step back like i'm just watching i'm just cheering for the bears guys like we you know that that's i like football right and hot dogs yeah. what, what are you getting on me about but yeah yeah but when like there's just little subtle things like week in and week out watch the if you watch football watch the telecast this weekend and it'll be just little things that are week in and week out and it forms you and shapes you. And it's, you'll see it this week. This game is being broadcast on the armed forces network to over 170 countries. And you don't even stop to think, wait, mm-hmm. we got armed forces in 170 countries, right. <laughs> you know, or you think about that. It's just normal because you've been watching it as part of your normal football experience. And so when, without critical reflection, your default mode then becomes, well, that is just normal that we've got soldiers in 170 plus nations in the world. You don't even do any critical reflection. Um, That's the downside of how procedures can shape our loves in particular ways. But if we really- They can shape, procedure has the possibility of shaping you unconsciously, right? Which is both its power and its strength, right? Because yes. little little children, right, can be shaped that way, you know, and, and all sorts of things. But but the danger of the procedural is that that it can slip past your uh, rider or your 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 greater awareness. Yeah. Yeah. And and it also it's like th- that's why the kneeling thing, right? The kneeling for the national anthem versus not kneeling. That's why it's such like a contentious thing. It's a religious fight. Right. And, and it's a it's like a desecration or, or, or some it's like apostasy or something like that, which is why it riles up such strong feelings. Yeah, it's the same thing if when you do show up in that charismatic church and or any church context and you're told worship this way and somebody doesn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at them as they are on the out group and we have very we're very finely tuned to that. A great book I recommend. I'm gonna have to wrap up here uh, shortly, Sam, but um, for people that listen into your podcast is um, Survival of the Friendliest. Um, I forget the author, Um, but it is a essentially evolutionary psychology assessing some of the some of the things that um, have been traditionally taught about Darwin's um, uh, focus on survival of the fittest and it's a critique Mm. of that in that there's mounting evidence that what ends up producing uh, lasting survival benefits is actually things like altruism um, self-sacrifice cooperation cooperation yeah Yeah. so you see all these Mm -hmm. things but one of there's a couple of chapters that really focus on what how that 
um, altruism and how we really care for the group can also be turned in such a way that produces immense hatred for anybody that's perceived to be outside of the group. Yeah. Oh man, you could get me talking about this subject for a long time. You're, you're yeah. teasing me with this right at the end. But... Well, let's do it. Let's do it again sometime, <laughs> Sam. Maybe we'll do uh, it again. You, know, yeah. you should pick up that book. You, um, it's survival of the friendliest survival of the friendliness. And I'm blanking on the author's names. A couple, it's two scientists. Um, it's just, it's really, really, yeah. Those that are into the Verveke Peterson stuff should definitely check it out. Survival of the friendly friendliest by Vanessa Woods and Brian Hare. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And that'll mm -hmm. help you understand a whole bunch of stuff. It'll help. I think to me, it, it's helps bring into conversation points of Christian theology with evolutionary theory in a way that's yeah. um, uh, like Sarah Coakley, a great Anglican theologian. It's in keeping with her work, which is like, we kind of need to analyze the narrative behind Darwin's language. We're not necessarily challenging the overwhelming scientific consensus that we've come from, you know, mm -hmm. uh, there's been this vast lineage and connection between all species, but we do need to challenge language mm -hmm. about it and yeah. to rethink whether or not it's been things like, you know, domination, you know, right. talks about this. So are we really talking about a dominance hierarchy or a competence um, hierarchy or a competence yeah. hierarchy and what might make for the most competent leader is not the angry alpha male, their short lived rule. Right. Um, and tumultuous. And right. Like, why did why did the kind of mostly Christian Anglosphere beat the Nazis? Right. If if everyone's like, man, the Nazis really had evolutionary theory figured out. They were the ones who were like, that should be what survives. Well, why did they lose? <laughs> right. Because yeah. they weren't good at making friends. <laughs> you know, when when you're fierce and very self-assertive and very exclusivist, well, it gets all of your neighbors mad at you all at the same time. And that's not a good way to win a war. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> so there's a great question there about whether or not over the long haul, gosh, we could go off on and on about how this connects to even Christian eschatology and the, yes. the idea of yeah. the mustard seed of the kingdom of God mm -hmm. is that the Nazis had this very strong sense of in-group yeah. But those that were on the out group, they were they were enemies to the in group. So like if you were in Nazi Germany, I have mm -hmm. no doubt that you'd experience immense sense of camaraderie, solidarity and self-sacrifice, yeah. mm -hmm. all of that stuff for those on the in group. It's the out group. And so the interesting thing about the way of Jesus is how that in group phenomenon gets expanded to people of every tribe and tongue yes yeah and and, and how christianity yeah christianity treats its in-group nicely right there are things that christians do with their in-group that we don't do with the out-group right we have communion yep. and we totally. have certain levels of trust and generosity that are unique to the in-group but our orientation towards the out-group is one of compassion and love and trying to win them over into the in-group, even at the expense of self-sacrifice and, and um, you know, self-giving or, you know, self-emptying love and, and agape and all of those sorts of That's things. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so unplugging from the culture war matrix to me looks like reclaiming that idea that is very much in a Dutch reform tradition, but it's the idea from Jeremiah 29 that when you're in Babylon, your goal is to seek the welfare of the city you inhabit because in mm -hmm. their welfare will be your welfare plant gardens. Yeah. You know, so we are, our orientation towards the out group 
it doesn't deny that there's differences right it doesn't and nor does it that. negate the existence of a group right yes totally and mm -hmm. and that, that's that's it's absurd and it doesn't negate the idea of hierarchies that hierarchies right. always emerge it's the is the nature of this hierarchy is it cruciform does it look like leaders washing people that are under them their mm -hmm. feet is it constantly doing this instead of constantly doing this beating down power yeah. uh, greg boyd calls it power over or power under instead of power over mm -hmm. someone so and then how do we relate to the out group it's like i want to bless that's how the transformation happens and if i get killed in the process it's like well the eschatological vision of christianity is that even if you die in the process your work and labor is not in vain right right so. and and it's a it's a weird if if Jesus is the you know the fullest example of what it means to perfectly embody humanity, and we sort of will agree that like yeah the full perfect embodiment of humanity is sort of the answer to what evolution wants. It's very strange that what it turned out that evolution wanted this whole time was this guy who didn't have any children and who voluntarily died on a cross, mm -hmm. and yet his pattern is replicating and conquering right yep. it in is a the, way yeah yep. it's a very strange thing it's it, what evolution turned out to one is not genghis khan not the nazis but but it's, the self-sacrificial body of christ this is and this is the last point and then i really got to run yeah. sam but i'd love to have a, a copy of our combo so i could maybe share it sure, with sure. my listeners too but that to me is that's at the heart of john's revelation what mm -hmm. What does he see enthroned as the ruler of the cosmos? The slain, slain lamb. lamb. And we the, are tempted. Who is to look the at, lion? The lion is the slain lamb. Right. And we're tempted to think, we look at that and go, well, isn't the thing or the entity that killed the lamb what's really in charge? And John's radical vision, to me, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, either we sign up for it or not, is to say, nope, the slain lamb is enthroned as king of the cosmos. And yeah. I believe that's even how that is going to play out in nature. Mm -hmm. um, that's the right ordering and right functioning. But anyways, yeah. I guess yeah. right. let's cut go. this off, but this is a blast, sure. man. Th this was really fun. Hopefully we'll talk again. Thank you very yeah. much for your time, Paul. I yeah, really take appreciate care. it. Yeah. Bye.